Hello. Thank you for listening to the Veridical Podcast. This is Jack Cesare. All right. In this episode, I am interviewing Dr. Michael Lundy. I met Michael over two years ago when I was a barista at a coffee shop in North Texas. And he came in and we were making small talk. And I found out that he is a neuroscientist. And I immediately bridged that to my fascination with the neuroscientist Sam Harris. And we sparked up a good conversation. I found out he was very interested in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which was piquing my interest at the moment. He was also uh, pretty invested in the field of moral philosophy, at least by the way he was talking. And that all happened long before this podcast was ever conceived. And so when I was going through the list of individuals that I would like to interview, he immediately came to mind. And as on last episode, I noted that he has a podcast of his own called Productive Politics, which is only on YouTube at the moment, and they are doing really great things over there. Him and his colleague Dan are both quite objective, but also very interesting to listen to. They give a lot of tangible and useful uh, navigating tips for the current political landscape, and also how to take care of yourself when navigating different news outlets, different uh, ideologies and interacting with people on the streets. I really recommend you check out Productive Politics. It is a real diamond in the rough. The link to that channel, and as well as any other references that I feel are important that we make in this interview, will all be in the description. Michael has a bachelor's in philosophy from Southern Methodist University. He is a terminal master's degree in neurophilosophy from Georgia State University, And he has his PhD in cognitive neuroscience from University of Texas in Dallas. The moment Michael started talking in this interview, I quickly felt that I was very under-equipped for someone of his skill and his caliber. Um, However, I believe we had an excellent talk. I feel it was very interesting, but also very useful and helpful for anyone trying to navigate the political landscape today. We talk about his history, how he got to where he is, his fascination with cognitive neuroscience, the idea of concept creep, the novelty of fighting ideas instead of people, the current political landscape, and if we've seen it before, confirmation bias and you. We talk about identity politics and how it traps us. We talk about various notes from his thesis, primarily drawing from his abstract. And at the end of the podcast, there were two things in specific that I was really excited to talk to Michael about. Those were religion and also free will. We cover these at separate times throughout the interview, and I feel that he shines a really good light on those two topics. Uh, It gets quite personal at the end, uh, in a good way, and that is really what I uh, try to foster here on Veridical. So I'm really happy this interview happened, and I think you'll enjoy it. And with that, I give you Dr. Michael Lundy. All right. I am here with Dr. Michael Lundy. Michael, thanks for coming by. Oh, it's great to be here. So off this, I will give you a a less formal introduction. I'll kind of give a a little bit of a list about you and just something quite quite easy. Um, Before we get started, I want to give you uh, your gifts. You said single malt scotch. And when I was at the liquor store, I decided... I don't think I'm ever going to ask my guests for their favorite liquor ever again, because I remember I looked up your favorite brand, 
And the thing that came up was a $380 bottle. And I said, he's not getting that, whatever that is. He's not getting it. I would feel embarrassed if you did. I'm glad you didn't. (laughs) I said, I am not getting him that. So I went and um, they were all like $100 for single malt. And then the rest of them were blended. And I, I, I can't do blended. And I, I know you, I, I, I knew when you asked for single malt, I knew you couldn't do blended. But I did find one. This is what I found. And oh, so, Blend Mirage. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, so you've had it. Oh, yeah. That's a great choice. Okay, I'm unfamiliar. Yeah, yeah. It's it got like a, a nice uh, citrus flavor in there. That's really what makes this one kind of distinctive okay, among the I'm varieties. I'm actually yeah. really happy you like it. Yeah, So it's you a can great either one. take it home, we can crack it open here. Uh, your call. I would love to share it with you. Brilliant. Okay, yeah. you start opening that. And then, or actually here, I'll open that and let me give you your other gifts. This is something I picked up. I, I live near a used bookstore. And so it's, it's, I, can, I can sometimes find somewhat interesting things. So I found this book. I got this one for you. I'll trade you. Oh, thank you. Oh, nice. Are We Hardwired? Role of Genes and Human Behavior. And then this one is one I don't think you'll really be reading. I don't know how much you value the hardcover books. I love the hardcover books. I don't I'm like also partial to them. Good. I found this. They stand the test of time. <sighs> I can't really carry it. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my Lord. Fundamental neuroscience. And it is a, it is a weighty tome that you give me. <laughs> yeah. This is a very nice reference guide. Very thoughtful of you. I got my Thank workout you. for the weekend just by picking that up off the shelf. I was going to say, this is like I'm doing my <laughs> curls right now. Setting a PR for myself. <laughs> So I found those two, and I said, I was <laughs> telling you. Desiree when I was picking that up, I'm like, I don't think he'll, he may never open this, but <laughs> it's relevant I got to do your podcast more often. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, if I can't pay someone, I at least want to compensate them in a way that they find more intentional. Well, it's very thoughtful. Thank you. Thank you. No problem, dude. Here's your bottle. Pour yourself whatever you want. And um, all right, while you're pouring that, I'm going to prime you here. I want to hear your history of how you got to kind of where you are, uh, your interest in academia, sort of tell us about yourself, tell us about the path you took, what you're doing now, what you did, um, be as specific as you want. Yeah, so I, I, let's start where I am now and we'll kind of backtrack a little bit. Uh, so I am a cognitive scientist. I work at a defense contractor called Applied Research Associates. And as the name suggests, it's all about trying to find the most applied aspects of basic theoretical questions that we can pose. And in my particular area where I work, it's all about the human factors, the human behavior, how that's relevant to making our warfighters more effective at what they do. Uh, But where my passion really lies is more so on the rehabilitative end of things. So not what really happens downfield in the actual soldiering, but rather the consequences thereof. When someone bears uh, mental and physical scars of having participated in a way of life like that, and how can they put themselves back together? So a lot of the projects I'm currently working on are of that particular uh, persuasion. Do you interact with a lot of PTSD? Is that sort of something relevant to you? Yes, it's it's one of my passions, uh, trying to understand how someone can get from a place of being broken and have that phoenix rising from the ashes moment in their life. Um, actually, where I, I guess I could say that that sort of interest came from wasn't just from my role as a scientist per se, but uh, from just being a teacher in, in different aspects uh, of, of my life. So uh, one of my side passions is uh, martial arts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, 
And some of the most gratifying moments I've ever had is seeing people join our team, join our studio, and they might have been in a terrible place in their life, and then they managed to put themselves back together. And so as a scientist, I really enjoy that hard labor, that, that work of trying to understand, well, what are the antecedents, where are the precursors that uh, explain someone's difficulty in being able to have those breakthrough moments, and what can we do to to remove those? So that's really kind of the applied aspects of what I do now, but I'm happy to kind of trace back a little bit further. Well, mm-hmm. it's, it's it, I just remembered you you brought up your BJJ. Yeah. Um, you know, we you and I both listened to a lot of Sam Harris, and that's kind of where I got introduced to it, and along with Lex Friedman. And me and Desiree, my fiance, we got so interested in the topic of BJJ because every time I would hear someone describe it, uh, when I was younger, I got to be a black belt in Taekwondo and it was interesting and I, I wish I pursued it further. But listening to people talk about BJJ, it's always so interesting because it's so much more mental almost than physical. And you don't know this, but there was one time uh, I think Ryan was live streaming one of your competitions and I joined in and this is, I've never really watched BJJ before. This was my first time watching. It was you live. And I got so frustrated because it started and your opponent just sat down and I thought, kick him in the head. What are you doing? Just like, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to. It was, it was <laughs> the most frustrating thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And then, so I actually went and I kind of Googled, why are they sitting down in BJJ? And it's a really good defensive maneuver. <laughs> Apparently you can be pretty defended when you do that. <laughs> it, it, it's really funny. The whole story behind that one, that was my first professional Brazilian Jiu Jitsu match as a black belt. And, and my opponent, um, you know, I don't, there's no need to you know, embarrass him or anything. I'm not going to mention his name, but, uh, basically we talked off stage, you know, after the match was over, it wound up being a draw. And he said he had seen some of the footage on me and he was trying to preempt my strategy. What you just described is called pulling guard where <laughs> you kind of fight off your back. And most of my wins and my record are with that strategy. He was trying to cut off that route from the very start for me. So we kind of <laughs> stalemated each other a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I've had to adapt somewhat, <laughs> you know, to be ready for I, that. I, mm-hmm. I just have, if you're listening and you don't understand kind of what this looks like, just please Google it. It is, I mean, it is just frustrating to watch. I couldn't imagine having to go against it, but not to get you off track, please tell us a uh, kind of, yeah, what, what led you to where you are? Sure. Sure. So, uh, so before I landed my, my, uh, my job, I currently have, Going further back to the start of my academic uh, journey, when I was an undergrad, I was a philosophy major. So on the very far end, the other end of the spectrum. So here we are on the far applied side of things that we've just been talking about. Where I started was just sitting around in the seminar room, just the classic armchair philosopher trying to um, suss out solutions to different theoretical problems that were of interest to me. And as you probably might have guessed, just based on what my business card says about my job, it was always philosophy of mind, philosophy of cognitive science. Those were the sorts of questions that really interested me. And Where was this? No, this is at Southern Methodist University. Oh. Mm-hmm. And uh, absolutely feel so indebted to my mentors there for fostering my uh, the spark of interest that I had in philosophy and uh, ended up taking it all the way as far as I could take it. In fact, I had considered going all the way to getting a, a doctorate in philosophy. But what I realized at some point along the way 
is I wanted to get in the trenches to actually test out some of the hypotheses I had, uh, some of the interest I had. And I realized there's only so much you can do just sitting around the seminar table. Um, I wanted to be able to actually operationalize some of the questions that were of interest to me, which I'm sure we'll get into later. As they say in Oppenheimer, theory will only take you so far. That's right. And so I, I tried my best to actually wear both hats. Instead of having to walk down the room to the experimentalist, I decided, well, I'll just go ahead and be the person who can go to the experiment room and the, th- and the theory you know, chalkboard. It'll just be all in, in my own same personhood to the best I could manage it. And uh, so I ended up going into a terminal master's program at Georgia State University, had an excellent program, uh, it was interdisciplinary by its nature, uh, called neurophilosophy. And so as the name suggests, the idea is you put together a thesis that cross-pollinates aspects of neuroscience with the theoretical um, resources through philosophy. And uh, actually, this this uh, book you got for me, this first gift here, this Are We Hardwired, is a really appropriate gift because my thesis project there was all about what basically the aspects of our mind that are that are hardwired into us that we just inherit through maybe an evolutionary process, like just basically the, the provenance of our evolutionary histories of species, not something that's really learned through our life as an individual, but uh, defaults in our behavior and uh, ended up. Uh, one of my first publications was actually on this um, idea of, well, what aspects of evolutionary theory might inform us as far as what are the default settings of our mind? So that that was actually something I was really interested in. And then I wanted to go from this 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 bridge program, which is a part theory, part experimentalist type of um, or applied rather, uh, and and try to go to a. a um, uh, to a, a cognitive neuroscience program. Um, I wanted to be able to use tools of neuroimaging to see brains in action, to be able to um, address some of the theoretical questions I had about cognition, about reasoning. Uh, as I'm sure we'll get into later, what always fascinated me is what, what what is the reasoning process exactly? What are the nuts and bolts that allow us to think? And one thing that always struck me as interesting, mainly because maybe by my nature, I've always been a curious person. And you know, I've, I've just a whole cornucopia of different topics and interests all over the place. But there are so many things where sure I have, I have my beliefs about things. Absolutely. I have my foundational beliefs, but I would say that I've always, I've never, it's so rare that I find it difficult to sort of play devil's advocate on questions that I've met people where they're so certain about something that the very, just the, the, just the notion of being able to entertain something to the contrary of their beliefs is, is it's almost like it's a disgust response, like a visceral response to it. And I was intrigued by this. I was always fascinated. Like, where does that come from? Like just that, that sense that you, you can't even entertain the possibility you might be wrong about something. And I wanted to understand that. Um, so that was, that was, um, one of the, the, uh, the, 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 um, the, the uh, main currents, the defining, one of the defining um, uh, theoret- uh, uh, qu- uh, question areas that uh, guided my work yeah, at, you, in my PhD program. You know, leading up, I was telling you, I was, I'm actually in the middle of an interview with Shirley Roper uh, with the Westboro Baptist Church. And what you just described there, I mean, I've never heard the word disgusted to change my mind. And, but, but that, makes perfect sense. I mean, I mean, that is the response. And when I was going through a very difficult sort of epistemological journey, 
I realized uh, quite quickly, for almost everything, I need to have an answer to this one fundamental question. And that is, what would it take for me to change my mind on this? And when I got to topics that I felt my identity intertwined with, it was hard to figure out those answers. What would it take for me to change my mind on my diet? Uh, More nutritious information. What would it take for me to change my mind on uh, when I should sleep or when I should eat? Um, Well, just show me the uh, biological studies and and I can do that. What would it take for me to change my religion Um, or even change my... um, how I view certain demographics, right? Like that was difficult for me. Um, And so I totally understand what you're saying. It was, it was difficult, but it it needs to be done. You you actually already hit the punchline. When you mentioned identity, that right there is the Rosetta stone for understanding what aspects of our life tend to be more flexible with our beliefs and what aspects of our life feel much more solid like concrete. It's been set and very difficult to move around. When I was still at Georgia State, I met a professor, a philosopher there named Neil Van Leeuwen, who was interested in this question. I took one of his seminars on belief and ideology. And he had developed this sort of dual process theory, this framework where there are different kinds of beliefs that we hold. There are some that are more pedestrian and everyday, sort of like the um, a belief that maybe there's an umbrella in the closet that I need to go retrieve before I go outside. And if, let's say, someone tell, informs me, oh, actually, you're mistaken. There's no umbrella in the closet. I say, oh, really? And yeah. I go over there. I open the closet. There's nothing in there. I change my belief immediately. <clears throat> there's, no, there's no friction at all, no challenge at all with doing this. But there are other sorts of beliefs. The ones that you just said constitute our identity, right? That's something special, right? These tend to be political beliefs, religious beliefs, and that wound up being the... I guess you can say that was the apotheosis of the whole uh, PhD program for me in cognitive neuroscience. I was in the reasoning lab with uh, Dr. Daniel Krozik, uh, who's an excellent mentor, uh, a friend and a colleague of mine. And uh, he, what makes him, what made him an amazing advisor is that he, look, from my experience talking to other grad students, what they experience is they don't get much autonomy oftentimes, right? You're there to sort of add a few of your own brush strokes to the masterwork that the uh, PI, the principal investigator, the head of that lab is working on. And that's the extent to which you get to exercise your individuality, your self-actualization. But Dan was very different in that uh, he allowed me, he basically handed me a cam and said, okay, let's figure out what we're gonna work on together. And he had never really worked on political cognition before. But the turning point for me, that this is you know going back a little bit to actually figure out the you know, where in the timeline this is this is taking place this is just around 2020 when COVID happened, and this is when I'd say that like an accelerant was added onto that brush fire of interest and passion I had for the topic because I saw within a few moments some some as some aspects of our decision making like whether or not to wear masks or whether or not to um, get vaccinated these suddenly became political footballs almost immediately, mm-hmm. and I I was intrigued by this. I was like, well, how is this? How is it that the, the what is the political association? Right. How, how, when did that happen? When did it suddenly get codified in our mind as a political action or a political talisman of sorts? And I want to understand how does that mystical alchemy of the brain take place? And so that was one of the animating questions that, um, I wanted to start tackling in my dissertation work. And even now I'm still interested in the question. I do work on that. 
Um, but yeah, that that's that's something that if, if you're wondering, I think we all have those those questions. I always nag at us, right? That's that's one of the questions where I'm up. 3 a.m. in the morning, wide-eyed, staring at the ceiling, still thinking about those kinds you of know, questions. You know, the new one for me is I'd, I would never – I never thought I would see the day. It's almost – if you're in the same fields on, on the algorithm that I am, mm. diets are politicized. Mm-hmm. I mean, really what you eat, which is – I mean, if you remove all of the human institutions from it, it is just how a food affects your body. You can measure that. It's all quantifiable, and somehow even my diets are being politicized, which I, ju- I, you, I could never see the, the, the connection, the tether. I don't, I don't see it, at least not yet. Yeah, that, that exactly, that's a great example how there's a sort of um, – I'm not, I'm not sure if this is really being misapplied, but I, I do think this is the appropriate term to use here. There's, there's a concept of uh, – there's something called concept creep. There's this idea that uh, any sort of concept or idea has a very narrow usage, suddenly starts to take over other aspects of our lives and you begin to see it everywhere, right? It's as though it's the only lens through which you can understand and decipher the meaning of anything. And I think that's happened with politics, where there used to be these sort of, um, you you know, how in 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 the human body, you have what are called immunoprivileged systems, right? Where the immune system cannot intrude into them. They're sort of vacuum sealed and hermetically like sealed Mm. and protected, right? From other systems of the body. And I I thought of certain aspects of our culture being similar, where they seem overtly apolitical, but it seems like that that's sort of like a shrinking territory. It's harder and harder to find places in our life where there isn't some sort of political glow to it or some implication to what you think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, hearing how you got here, that's, that's, um, that's brilliant. Um, up next, I want to say, or talk about, um, please help us understand what is happening in our political landscape. And after you explain what's happening, uh, have we seen it before? Have we been, has this episode already happened? Um, I don't, I don't know your interactions with the history of political landscapes. Um, before you go, I'll say I was in, um, Twice, uh, twice a month I attend the Dallas Philosophers Forum, and um, we had a discussion one time, and during the Q&A I said, um, certainly the political division that we're experiencing today has never been like this before. And I said that. And then at the end of it, uh, about four or five people over the age of 50 were very quick to run up to me and say, you don't know what you're talking about. You should have been around during Reagan. You should have been around during Nixon. You should have been around during McCarthyism. And uh, they quickly put me in my place that we've we've been here before. Uh, Maybe to the best of your abilities, how has you you can kind of in your um, in your diagnosis kind of tell us what technology is doing? Um, I that has to be. I'm I don't I'm not really experienced in this field, but. I just, I'm almost certain technology is shaping and changing the way the political landscape uh, works. It, it has to, but share, please. Yeah, I think you set that up very well. And I'm going to try my best not to give that the, the patented <laughs> uh, yes and no answer that you're so, oh, we're so used to getting from experts. <laughs> and I'm going to say, well, all right, it's, it might be true there's always been division. 
right? For the, those who are of um, an older generation who are chastising you for claiming there's something special and singular about this moment of division, where they're coming from is, yes, they've seen division before. That's not novel. But where you're coming from is the fact that as a species, we're totally unprepared for the arenas and the theater in which these divisions are playing out. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that we have these digital avatars that we adopt on social media, and we use that as our proxies to engage in a sort of cognitive war with one another, trying to um, engage in conflicts to achieve some sort of dominance for our ideological mm -hmm. camp. The way that plays out, the way that we as a species, we were never adapted for communicating with each other in that way where you can't look into someone's eyes, you can't actually see their physical reactions to things, you don't actually see their humanity, quite literally. You're, you're arguing with an idea, about ideas, and that's somewhat novel, that's new. And I think that, that accelerates the dehumanization that occurs in these, in these conversations. What I mean by that is ceasing to see the person you're talking to as a full human being, like yourself, flesh and blood with people they love, people who love them, with dreams, goals, insecurities, all the rest, everything that makes you who you are. It's so easy to forget those things when all you're seeing is just a little avatar next to a nondescript string of words, and that's the thing you're, you're, you're communicating with on a comment section under a YouTube video or on a Reddit forum. Those things, I think, introduce something entirely new into that cocktail of political conversation that has not helped us by any means. And if our goal is to achieve something out of politics, something like trying to solve problems together, try to uh, create a, a better uh, democratic way of life, uh, I can't think of too many people who would confidently say that social media and the technological advances have only been value adding mm -hmm. as far as those goals are concerned. You know, it's this brings back a, a memory. Um, about a year or two ago, I, me and Desiree, we went to a, um, a Charlie Kirk rally. Hmm. Uh, are you familiar with him? Turning Point USA. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. And um, we don't align. We don't really come near his sort of ideology. But um, my idea is I can't talk about this. I can't be against this if I don't know what this is. So we reluctantly went and... and Long story short, I went up to the Q&A line. Um, it happened how I sort of predicted it would happen. It went online. It got, he put it on his on his Instagram page, and it got however many thousands of, of uh, circulations. And, um, of course, the direct messages to me, once they found in the comments section that I was claiming to be the guy in the video, the DMs started coming in. And I remember, you, you know, I've not to take time away from you, but I've often said to myself, if I was to have a second religion, my second religion would be the religion of conversation uh, with its own dogmas and with its own creeds. And, 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 and this religion needs to be cherished by everyone. I really believe that. It's, it is sort of like the last line of defense from anarchy, in my view. And there's this, especially when it gives me gray hairs and it, it drains me, it completely exhausts me. I have this idea of now I'm going to keep talking to them and I'm, I'm not going to be mean. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to be genuine here. And all my friends say, Jack, this is, this is killing you. You got to block it. You got to turn the, the notifications off, whatever. And I, I just get addicted to the, the conversations. But as you're describing, 
I mean, I never put it into these words. You're very helpful here is, you know, you're fighting with an idea instead of a person with their, with an identity. And I remember one day me and this guy were going back and forth about the video. And I, I just said, you know, actually I would love to keep this going. I feel like I'm misinterpreting you intentionally. And I feel like you're misinterpreting me intentionally. And, and this, this intentional misinterpretation, like wanting to misunderstand me, it, it hurts. And, and I, I'm, I'm scared I'm doing it. So he, he ended up calling me. Great, great talk, actually. Um, I don't think we made all the progress we would have both wanted. But I mean, instead of me saying, oh, so you hate poor people, you know, it was it was actually a much deeper understanding. I mean, just even hearing uh, a voice instead of just seeing text, it just changed that whole event. Uh, this idea of just fighting with ideas instead of people and, and that being um, one of the vestiges of technology. Yeah, I mean, I saw that tangibly. I think you're speaking perfectly on that. You, you actually added the perfect signpost <laughs> to oh, what uh, what ended up bubbling to the surface through all this work. Through the end of the end of my uh, PhD program, uh, kind of pick up how that narrative um, resolved its, resolves itself to to the uh, present moment. Is uh, my dissertation was titled "The Metacognitive Underpinnings of Confirmation Bias and Its Political Consequences." And the operative term there is metacognition. The interlocutor that you had this incredible moment of connection with had this moment of what's called metacognition, thinking about his own thinking. He reflected on the style with which he was addressing you and how he was processing the information that you were giving to him. And that, to me, is an incredibly protective cognitive resource that few of us actually ever deploy. And it's the meta conversation. It's the how are we and you're interacting with each other. What are we really up to here? What is it I think I'm going to accomplish through this exchange? And for those of us who feel inclined or disposed to ask those sorts of questions, that can serve as a sort of brake system on the in the accelerator uh, pedal of I just want to assert my views mm-hmm. and try my best to win this verbal arm wrestling contest with this uh, person I'm, I'm exchanging with, but. Actually, that was the primary factor that that uh, um, that that presented itself as that uh, foothold to give us some ray of hope here. Um, not to mix metaphors clumsily, but the yeah. idea being, we all come with our cognitive uh, um, resources, and, and as impressive as they are, our ability to reason abstractly, to be able to draw on sources of knowledge and experience to confront and, and decipher, understand novel situations. And these are the hallmarks of, of human cognition, and they're very impressive. But we also have blind spots known as cognibiases, shortcomings in our abilities. And and they, they, they present them, themselves in a very dramatic way when it comes to the political theater of conversation because of the motivations that happen to be in play. So I guess when those individuals came up to me at the forum and said, no, we've always had division, I think not that they were doing this maliciously, but they were always taking for granted that they were, every time they were having these disagreements, there was meta conversation with themselves. Every time they they met a guy in a bar or, or on the street that they disagreed with uh, ideologically, they, it was at the end of the day, it was always a person. You could always humanize the individual on the other end of your conversation. And, and I guess that's 
this, what is contributing to the division or, or what's making it more poisonous is the lack of self, of, of having this meta conversation with oneself. We, I think that uh, the, the lay person um, is becoming more and more familiar with terms like echo chamber, mm-hmm. filter bubbles, right? These are phenomena that are exacerbated by social media. The idea here is that, say, with an echo chamber, is that you're hearing your own beliefs, the propositional beliefs that you hold to be true, echoed again and again by those with whom you are associating. And filter bubbles suggest that you have a sort of semi-permeable membrane in that social network where only certain kinds of information ends up making its way in front of your eyes to actually reach your brain. And it tends to be information that confirms the things the things you already think. This is known as confirmation bias. And we do this willfully, where we're looking for information to confirm the beliefs that we hold. This becomes especially problematic when we are contending with algorithms on social media that attempt to suss out your tendencies and your interests, and they try to feed forward the things that you already uh, find to be salutary to whatever your your interests are or whatever your, your affinities are for certain topics, and begins to build up this, this sense of overwhelming confidence in, in your belief system. And if you don't encounter those who hold contrary views to yourselves very uh, very often, you might start to develop very exaggerated sort of caricatures uh-huh. of people who don't think the way you do. In fact, you don't even believe they just have a different opinion than you. You begin to think that they are different than you when it comes to reasoning capability or even when it comes to whether or not they have um, moral, uh, moral competence. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, I want to read the sentence from your your abstract, and then you you please just make it a little bit more consumable for us. Sure. Um, regarding what you uh, studied in your dissertation, you wrote in the abstract, uh, the findings indicate indicate that metacognitive sensitivity attenuates confirmation bias, operationalizes integration of disconfirmatory evidence in the context of low level perceptual decisions, but not when it comes to higher order analytical decisions. So does that mean that this is primarily happening subconsciously? And um, now that I'm asking that, I feel like I'm kind of dumb for asking that, but are there people that are, does, when you answer it, does it only happen in the subconscious? And if not, are there people that are, think they're doing the just thing? Are there people that think that they are, their simplified characterizations of others is noble or proper? Hmm. Yeah, so starting with the the statement uh, that you you plucked from my my uh, dissertation work, what I'm distinguishing between there, uh, I mentioned before this um, philosopher from Georgia State named Neil Van Leeuwen, and if we recall, uh, I mentioned he had a dual process framework between mm-hmm. beliefs and what he calls credences, right? The idea is that you have, you know, the, what the example of the umbrella that's just like your everyday kind of belief, right? That's what you call like a perceptual belief, something you actually see, feel, and touch interact with in a very concrete way. And analytical beliefs are those that are purely abstract, just purely ideas. And the point I'm trying to make there is that uh, for those who are more inclined to engage in this sort of metacognition, thinking about their thinking, thinking about their own blind spots, about their own capabilities, but also their weaknesses, they're more inclined to be very flexible when it comes to downgrading 
their confidence in mistaken perceptual beliefs. But when it comes to analytical beliefs, there's more stubbornness. Right? Mm. Even when presented with counter evidence in the experimental tasks that we gave to our participants, even when given corrective evidence, there was less of a tendency to reduce one's confidence in those cases. Now, this is, is highly contentious, and I, I'd, I'd fully acknowledge that. But I do think that there are certain sorts of beliefs, especially of the political variety or the religious variety, where, yes, we have the impression where we want to have the true belief about the world with a capital T. Yes, I want my beliefs, the way I articulate them in words, to match the way the world's actually organized. But there's a special functional role that these sorts of beliefs play in our lives, and it's a decidedly social function. It allows us to form communities, mm. social bonds. and Tribalism. Yes, tribalism. And there's so much at stake. Besides just changing my way of carving up the world into its constituent basic elements, far more is at stake than that has to do with my life as a human being, the people I trust, the people I call brothers and sisters, the sense of purpose I have with my life, all that is wrapped up in those sorts of beliefs. And that creates a very powerful gravitational pull on our fealty and our sense of emotional attachment. And that's what we're contending with. That's where the stubbornness comes yeah. from. And that's where that resistance, that, that visceral sense of resistance comes from uh, to be able to entertain things that cut against that, that, that way of thinking. Do you know who I see this with is, you saw the story with uh, Ayad Hirsi Ali. Uh, which particular story? She is, you're familiar, are you familiar with her? She's, uh, she Somali. was. Somali. Uh, yes, she was yes. A, a, yes, an apostate and famously uh, departed from her religion of Islam and has been regarded as an apostate. There was. Um, a been, hitwa uh, a, or who, whatever you call it, a bounty. Basically. Yes, yes, yes. Always looking over her back. Right. I don't, I guess you haven't seen, so she's a Christian now. Right. Yes. Now, I, I did hear about this. And my, when I, you know, I, I very much look up to figures like Sam Harrison. Um, there's always this ray of hope that someday, you know, if I believe I have the correct worldview, there's always this hope someday maybe he will see things like I see them. Mm. Um, and people tell me, they say, just like you're saying about identity, they say, if he did, he would lose everything. Mm. He would lose all of his community. He would lose all of his supporters. Mm. He would lose this whole framework that he has established. And I always thought, that's so true. And it, was all, it almost made me hopeless, but then that's exactly what just happened with Ion. And, and I mean, at least with the channels that I watch there, I mean, it, it is exactly how it was predicted. There's a lot of people saying you know, she's confused. She's delusional. Oh, in that one interview with that guy, she said that she was going to therapy. Clearly she's emotionally distressed. She's grasping for the, And so, yeah, I mean, there is an example of, you, you know, she just lost all of her social framework. I mean, in that instant. Is exactly what you um, paint out very vividly with this particular example. And either this happens in reality, and it does in fact for many people, or there's the fear it might happen, yeah. right? And it's this sense of how could someone possibly turn to their closest circle of friends and family and 
and confess that they have changed their sense of what's right and wrong. That's that's what's landing on the ears of the person they're talking to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their sense of who they are, why they're here in this world, all of that changes. It's not just a statement of how you think the world is organized. It's not just a factual statement about the world. These are... This is the tissue out of which we weave our sense of meaning, identity, purpose, and connectedness in the world. Mm-hmm. And many of us um, who get frustrated with the unwillingness of others to consider contrary opinions from their own, we're so we're so uh, hasty to forget that those beliefs do, in fact, serve those other functions. And um, I've become increasingly, uh, uh, I guess. Uh, I guess I've come to appreciate just how important that is, but also it gives a sense of compassion. It's not, in, in fact, what really gets in the way of having fruitful conversations, in my estimation, is that we start to form these judgments about somebody's character, their intelligence, their competence, their mm-hmm. sense of moral, their, their sense of a moral intelligence based on their beliefs. Just full stop. Right. If I think I know what you believe about politics, religion, etc., I start to fill in all the blanks about mm. who you are as a person, and I'm I cease to be curious. That's the problem: is that we begin to fill in all the blanks. There's so much more that needs to be known about a person besides just the labels that we put on them. So I hear you, but mm-hmm. and just a little bit of pushback. Yeah, uh, maybe it's because I feel guilty. Hmm. But if you maybe speak into this. I feel if someone tells me um, that they're very much um, against the vaccine, so without it being of any relation, I think I automatically know their position on guns. I think I automatically know their position on climate change. Right? If you tell me that you think the um, earth is 6,000 years old, I immediately know your ideas on homosexuality. Now, one is the age of the earth and the other one is someone's sexual uh, orientation. No link there. But, but you know, I feel if, if I could gamble on it and I was given someone's position on abortion, I could predict their position on guns or the climate or the southern border. And so isn't there... Not saying it's healthy, I'm not saying it's moral, I'm not saying it's right, but don't these people that think this way, isn't the, when our minds do this, whether subconsciously or consciously, isn't there good reason at this point? You might be right. We've gotten enough positive feedback. You might be right that there are constellations that hang together of of, of certain types of beliefs. Like you said, most likely, if you know somebody's position on abortion, then you probably could take a pretty good guess about their position on gun rights or on the border or on foreign relations and all the rest. But do you know much about how their relationship with their father or their mother Mm. or their siblings Mm. might have impacted their sense of whether they had a strong support system growing up in life? Uh, Is it possible that they never really had a sense of belonging with any strong community or real sense of acceptance until they happen to run into a group that had one of these, any number of, of, of the boxes we just checked. Uh-huh. There could be one such issue that's the gateway issue, right? Mm. It's the entry point. 
it's the first moment they realize, wow, this, this person sees me for who I really am and really touches me deep down in my heart and my soul. And we, as social creatures, want to affiliate. We want to, there, there's a principle of networking called homophily, like networks with like, right? It's almost like a Hebbian principle, right? With the, you know, the, the Hebbian principle from neuroscience is neurons that that's fire pre-Socratic right there in philosophy. The the like attracts like. Yeah, yeah there's an affinity there, <laughs> yeah. and we we know this from um, close friendships. There might be some sort of island of interest that you share with somebody, and then you start to become intrigued about the other aspects of that person. And you might be, maybe you're, you're someone who bonds originally over sports. Then you find out this person also enjoys karaoke, and you start going to do that with them. And you find, you know what, I'm starting to develop this interest as well. I think this is kind of what happens with politics. Mm. There might be that first issue, that first interest of yours, and there could be a very personal story there that brought them there. They have a real emotional attachment to it. But then as that starts to take on a more predominant aspect of defining their identity in the world, they want to show, yes, I'm flying my flag of loyalty to this group. I'm proud of being a part of this group. Um, you know, for instance, look, any number of religions, um, you know, speaking as a Christian myself, there might be certain uh, statements in the, in the Bible, right, or the scriptures that really resonate with me. Um, but it's a gateway, Right. And other aspects that maybe I've I've only thought about not to that same level of depth as other aspects of what originally attracted me to it, but nevertheless I'm still going to check those boxes, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's still a part of the package, and I think that this is often what happens with the gospel, as it were, of different political ideologies, huh. where there might be a few verses, as it were. You get where I'm going with this, yes, right? Yes. That we're, we've thought very deeply about because it's, it, it touches us in our heart and our soul. Mm -hmm. It really defines who we are. But then the other aspects, we're willing to say yes in a sort of, uh, let's just say, intuitive way. Like I don't have time to go through yes. all this. We just have limited cognitive deal. resources, yeah. right? We know this so from cognitive science. We know we're cognitive misers, right? We don't expend cognitive resources unnecessarily unless there's some sort of driving uh, um, reason to do so. And before you know it, you have end up checking up a, a lot of boxes, almost like small print that you don't really read before <laughs> yeah. you buy that cell phone. The contract. Right? Yeah. <laughs> before you sign up social media and say yes to the cookies. Yeah. Right? And, and but the thing is, even when we are challenged on the other beliefs, uh, we still feel that sense of loyalty. Loyalty is important to us as a species. And we're going to stand up for the group that gives us that sense of loving and belonging. So here's a topic that if you, I mean, I could probably spend hours talking about my difficulties with religion. Right. But one topic that is completely upending my life right now, and I've talked about it in many episodes on this podcast, and that is the topic of free will, because I have often mm. said, um, and I, I, it would, my life would get easier if I could just be proven wrong <laughs> on, the, on this ax, axiom, but it's this thing I told myself that for religion, not just to make any sense, but to be of any worth, for, for most of these big name religions, they, they have to presuppose free will. They have to. It's the, the, the Calvinist model for Christianity is never even, not that I'm bothered by it, not that it's, oh, I, but I feel like I have free will, so it has to. No, it's not that. It's, 
if you believe that, that, that there is no free will and you're also a Christian and you're proud of this or whatever, you have to go to bed at the end of the night. And once you drop all your language, once you drop all your, all the, the way you dress up and you garnish your words, you have to sit down at the end of the day and say, God manufactures specific individuals for hell. There, there, this, this isn't me playing some word game with it. This isn't me um, packaging up in some uh, edgy way. There is no way around that. And, and I mean, this, this translates to, I mean, Buddhism is very specific on, on, on living your moral life now. Uh, Judaism is very focused on the here and now and how you live this life. All of these things presuppose or necessitate a free will for them to make any sense or have any worth on the individual. And in one sense, in my philosophical and in my theological spheres, free will just makes sense. It's, I feel like I'm doing this. I feel like I chose this. Um, when I sit down and I, and I, when I listen to other podcasters, when I read books and when I meditate, when I do the meditations that you also do, free will absent, completely, just completely unrecognizable. I can't, I couldn't even imagine it, especially, especially when I'm doing a a Vipassana Vipassana meditation. And I, I, I don't know if you remember, you're a busy man, but I, I actually texted you, it must have been two years ago, and I, I asked you, do, do you believe in free will? And you, you said you did. And I, when I worked at that coffee shop, I confronted you and I said, how do you, and you said, well, it's the presence of there being something immaterial there. And I believe in the immaterial, but if I'm being honest, and uh, I got to be respectful of your time, I know this would take... Uh, this would take hours. If you could just share sure. with me, because it also looks like your dissertation work and sort of everything you do professionally here either presupposes or or sort of relies on or winks at free will. Right. Just in how, however long or however short, p- share, please, your sure. position on free will and how you explain it. Yeah, I think what we care about is agency. That's what I think this boils down to, is the sense that I'm authoring my choices, right? Ultimately, the progenitor of whether I went left or right, whether I decided to get married or not married, that I went to college or not, all these things I can say resides in some decision framework that I myself have endorsed. So it's the agency question that I think is ultimately what we're defending. That's the, that's the hill we're trying to die on here. Um, now, as for the free will thing, I think that uh, the problem with this debate, <laughs> and it's definitely not the primary focus uh, of my intellectual resources and in my research, but mm-hmm. it, it, like so many debates in philosophy, it's, it's definitely a battle for turf over the, the ground of definition, right? Oh. The way free will is defined. Um, yes, so, for instance, here's just here's just a little uh, example of how these this really matters. How you're defining it. So, take if you think of it as like a categorical variable. In other words, it's binary. It's either all there or all gone. There is no degree through which you have free will or not. Then, of course, it's an entirely different question. But if, say, you know, like, like, for instance, with Daniel Dennett, and I haven't read him in a while, so, you know, those out there who are, like, real Daniel, Daniel Dennett fans. Determinist. You know, 
forgive me for if I'm butchering his his description of it, but he has almost like a scalar way of defining it, like degrees of freedom. I put it on a spectrum. That's what I'm getting at. Now, it's an entirely different question, right? If you're thinking about like degrees of freedom you can achieve, right, perhaps through some equipment of the nervous system and the, uh, you know, the sense of you have specific dimensions along which decision-making can occur or... Um, flexibility of movement of one's mind, then that's perhaps one way in which you can distinguish, let's say, species to species that we're more free than a, than an earthworm <laughs> through <laughs> our capacities, just sheer capacities, right? Um, so that's that's where I think with the free will debate really hinges is just on, on these battle the, the, the turf wars of definition. Now, when you're talking about meditation and how that sense of free will disappears. What I noticed with like the Frapasana, Frapasana um, styles of meditation is that you're highly keenly aware of every sense datum. <laughs> and I mean that in the singular sense, like the indi individual um, constituents of our conscious experiences. And if you look at that level of granularity, yes, you're going to find that it's not voluntary whether certain phenomena are going to present themselves before you. And in fact, something must have gone horribly haywire in the modular sen sensory processing systems of your brain if it wasn't that way. Because I wouldn't be thinking it's not about surprising. these things. But I would say like the sense of free will and the self and all those things, it's best to describe as a composite. So for instance, I'm sitting in a chair right now. I could play that game and say, well, there's no chair. What are you talking about? There's armrests and there's a cushion. There's a back seat, but I don't see any chair because if I try to point it to any one element of that thing, mm -hmm. I'm going to say I'm going to see one of its constituent elements. Huh. But that's what happens when you're engaging in that sort of mindfulness practice of meditation. You're too you're, focused. Yes. By its nature, you're narrowing your attention. You're tunneling your attention to details you're going to lose the whole picture. This is like saying, this is like arguing with someone who says there's no such thing as a forest. There's only trees. This is like the blind people touching the elephant trying right. to do. Exactly. So if you said there's no such thing as a forest, I see individual trees, <laughs> right? And that's true. If you're only ever seeing individual trees, you're never going to see a forest. Oh. But if you see the composite, yes, you will um, unmistakably, inevitably see it, the forest. And it's in those moments, especially in like flow states, right, where you're truly absorbed in the composite of an experience that you're going to, you, you cannot, it's, it's so viscerally present, you cannot deny the sense of self. Uh, the problem though, is that you're at least self-reflective in those states. That's the paradox. Anyone who's, uh, Shishak Mahai is uh, someone who wrote the book Flow, and that's the opposite of mindfulness. It's when you, your sense of self has actually dissolved into a task to the point where you've disappeared entirely. Um, and those are ecstatic experiences, euphoric experiences, in fact. But that sense of losing yourself in one's experience, Is that right? the, the end goal of mindfulness? Is to get to this opposite I would say mindfulness is about presence. It's about presence, hmm. being in the present moment. And that's highly, uh, it, it, it's, 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 essential for our way of life. We have so many accelerants towards 
getting to the next thing. Like most of what we do during the day, if we're really reflective about it, is just getting to the next thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, high school students are just getting to college. <laughs> college students are just getting to their PhD. Yes, and those who have jobs are getting, waiting for that raise, waiting for that promotion. And then the retirement, yeah. Yeah, exactly, waiting for retirement. It's always about the next thing as opposed to being absorbed in the present moment. And that, in fact, is the uh, lodestar of conversation. The lodestar of conversation is presence. Um, in fact, um, I, I, I had a really pleasant conversation with a mindfulness meditation uh, expert once, and she, we were talking about the difference between intra, with a, an RA, intra-personal aspects of mindfulness and inter-aspects of mindfulness. That is presence in a conversation. Hmm. And I have to say, it's not an area where I truly excel. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's as, like for my personal practices, I'm, I find that I'm very good with the expressive aspects of conversation, but for the listening, it's it's like a, a, a dutiful obsession of mine. Well, it's is just so difficult listening. to navigate. Especially when and there's pressure involved. If you have a sense of, like if you're on the spot or if you like your reputation's at, at stake or if there's like a referendum on your competence or whether or not you're worth speaking to. Or if it challenges a belief you're, yes. you're identifying yes. with. You immediately just dis- get dislodged from that, right? Yeah. And you're finding yourself thinking about, I'm waiting for this guy to stop talking so I can get my turn to defend <laughs> who I am. Yeah. And that in itself is, and <laughs> that's diagnostic of what happens in so many political conversations oh, to kind of put a, a, a tie little bow around that. So, man, I, I mean, I could always talk about free will for just hours, but mm. I want to get back to sort of um, your wheelhouse here. Sure. If you don't mind, um, I, I mean, I want to hear, maybe share some moments. Well, first off, actually, you've done all this work on confirmation bias and identity politics. Yes, please. Love to have some more. Thank you very much. Perfect. Um, do you know of, I mean, we've touched on it briefly here and there about um, having the meta conversation, the, the metacognitive sensitivity um, with ourselves. Um, do you have a way for when people are on the internet or in person and they're, you know, we all have, even you and, and, you know, you, you don't, tr- you're not superhuman. Certainly you've experienced these moments yourself on certain topics. Do you have a, whether it's easy, whether it's hard, do you have a formula? Do you have a, a method? Do you have a practice? Maybe something we can practice by ourselves and then maybe flex it like a gym and then you go lift things in, in the real world. Do you have a way we can kind of fix this or, 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 be less sort of robotic with our responses. Yeah, I have my fiance, Ryan, to credit for this. So one of the real insights that helped me to make some headway in this very question was to realize that we can be highly focused on our sense of defining ourselves by being an extension of the group to which we belong and the turf war. Like imagine if you saw the world as a map, like a heat map, and the world was, all the, the colorings were coded by the group of which you're just sort of one constituent, an atom, an extension of, mm-hmm. an ex- exponent of, and trying to gain more territory versus turning the aperture of attention inward towards growing yourself. 
Hmm. So if you think back to elementary school, in fact, way back to our rudiments of the basic narratives. In fact, this, this is a sidebar conversation. Just like you're interested in free will. My current obsession is whether or not we, we fundamentally think through logic or through narratives, stories. And I think that just as we have rules of logic, there are rules by which stories are organized. Some stories resonate with us and some just fall flat, right? Anyway, but that, that, that little uh, diversion set aside, if we define ourselves by, think about the trifecta we're acquainted with, man versus man, man versus himself, man versus environment, Nature, yeah. right? If it's man versus man, it's me dominate the other one. Then it's the outcome is so predictable. Mm-hmm. It's the turf war. But if it's man versus himself, and man versus the environment, versus first of all, man versus himself, that's the whole point of mindfulness. Yeah, it's all about conquering certain aspects of ourselves we know that could be bettered. Right? It's instead of waiting for like instead of externalizing the Michelangelo and David, where someone else is being the architect, we are both Michelangelo and David. We're trying to carve ourselves. We're trying to better ourselves. We're trying to perfect ourselves, right? And doing it interpersonally in a conversation. But then also think about the man versus environment. That's the affiliation. That's the you and I being on the same tribe, a part of the same tribe, the same team, right? It's the idea that any sort of hallucination that we're both participating in where somehow I've broadcasted onto you some sense that you're somehow against me and realizing <laughs> that's all a fantasy. None of that's real, huh. right? You and I are both trying to cover up for certain traumas, certain insecurities that we have throughout our lives that we've not even began to plunder. When those moments of honesty and vulnerability, we transcend politics and realize, wow, we've been wasting our times. The truth is you and I are both individuals who don't know why we're here. We're trying our best to figure out why we're on this planet, why we're in this body, why we're in the family we've been thrust into, mm-hmm. right? And those moments of brought, like really raw honesty, that's where our humanity is really revealed. And that's where we truly begin to grow. Hmm. That's how you get past that. Huh. The problem though is how you scale that because not everyone's yeah. ready for it. Not everyone is ready to drop the facade because so many of us feel the social pressures to it's continue. comfortable. Yes, it is. It's comfortable and it's reinforced because... There are people who are in very cushy positions of power and influence who count on us being in that position for as long as possible. And then it feels like in some, especially political and religious, the door out is locked from the inside. Hmm. It, it feels like it's even... Because we hold the keys. <laughs> this is so poetic. I mean, this is... Yeah, I, I, the man versus self and, and man versus... that narrative and, and the the metaphor of being both Michelangelo and David, I mean, being able to recognize that in real time, um, yes. it's just all these things you're saying, brilliant. It's just, I feel when I look at myself and maybe mm. when I look at others, mm. real time change, mind changes and, and, and these realizations it's almost like when people they tie the string around their finger as a reminder. <laughs> I wish we would we would do that more so we could have these moments of introspection 
in real time because yes, the changes in real time <laughs> are the 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 rarest occurrence. It is, um, it's so hard to get into real time. I mean, they they may go home and do it as they're falling asleep, like. Damn, he got that, he did it. You, you actually have completely identified the problem. It's always in retrospect. It's always in the rearview mirror that we have these moments, right? Think about the movie Inception. Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio's character has that little spin top. Yes. That, right? And he yes. uses that to remind himself whether or not he's in a dream or not, right? And if we had the equivalent of that when we were in these oh, moments that are man. crucial, right? Where you think, wait, 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 wait. I almost got swept away. I almost forgot what, <laughs> right? Yeah. Man. And that right there. Like, if you're trying to figure out, like, what am I searching for? Like, my Indiana Jones story is, like, what's my holy grail? That's it. Yeah. Like, what are those internal signals that, yeah. we can, that we can festoon to ourselves so that we can have those reminders when we crucially need them? Well, right? I really feel like it's, it's like lifting weights. It's like meditating on, on the app. Um, hmm. You meditate enough on the app, and then there's moments when, in my day when I'm doing a transition, but, you know, the app always prompts you. You know, when you're about to transition from something, take yeah. a moment to take stock. Yeah. You can even go further and just be in the middle of a task. If you do it enough times, it becomes second nature and it's it's like lifting weights. I mean, getting in the gym the first couple of times is near impossible. You're you're having this world war with your uh, with your desires. And I feel if we could have these if for for reference, I kind of mentioned this on my last episode on my phone, and I would encourage everyone to do this. I mean, I think this is one of the good sort of gateways. I'm not claiming to, I'm not claiming I don't have stubbornness at all. I do, mm. but mm. I have a list on my phone, dates and times of when I have changed my mind mm. in real time. I mean, mm-hmm. in a, in the middle of a conversation, I'll say, "Hold on, I got <laughs> I got to put this on here." Um, you do that enough. And you can, yeah, I mean, it's, it's nowhere near as convenient as Leonardo DiCaprio's spin top, but, right. but it's, it's, it's a step. And, um, I feel like we can all sort of come up with these tools. You know, <laughs> what's, what's helpful, I think, um, is to have a, have a sense of what it is you're trying to accomplish. What is your sense of growth and success? So kind of putting my cards on the table. We all want to have an idea of, well, what do I stand for, right? Here's the problem with, so we're all trying to find solutions to this problem of polarization, division, chaos in the world. And we're all looking for the one position that is meant to be the silver bullet, right? Is it liberalism? Is it being conservative, libertarian, progressive? Etc. So what I find, just speaking for myself, is I borrow from my identity as being a martial artist. And I think back to how martial arts martial arts used to be very parochial, right? What do you mean by parochial? So think about the history of mixed martial arts. The first mixed martial artist was Bruce Lee. What he recognized is it's an entirely erroneous question to ask what is the one best style? Is it Wing Chun? Is it uh, some other form of striking? Is it jujitsu? Is it some other form of grappling, etc.? What is the best style? Wrong question. It's all about take what works from every style. Hmm. 
because they all have some sense of the truth. You mentioned earlier the blind men and the elephant metaphor, right? I'm sort of of the persuasion of Jeet Kune Do, which is Bruce Lee's style, when it comes to politics. We all have some feeling for the elephant. Yes. We all have different sensitivities. Yes. Some of us are very sensitive to the plight of the downtrodden. This is wealth inequality, Mm -hmm. right? That's the narrative of those who are interested in that particular uh, story, that outcry, right? Some of us are sensitive to the that of responsibility, bearing a weight that's worthy of you and your gifts, conservatives. Mm-hmm. Some of us are sensitive to the story of spreading a sense of opportunity and capability, equalizing it across the world, the liberals, yeah. right? We all need each other. What I saw in martial arts is that the answer was all of the above, right? We all have some sensitivities. Not all, no one group sees everything there is to see. Uh-huh. Right? My favorite metaphor for this is, imagine how boring an argument would be between a, a bee and a snake. So a bee sees in uh, ultraviolet and a snake sees in infrared. Imagine <laughs> if they argued over who sees the real world. They both do. Yeah. They see different parts of the spectrum. Together they see more. Yeah. Instead wow. of arguing who sees what's really there, they could say, wow, look how much more we see together. Wow. And that's what a political conversation should look like. And it could very well look like that. And all the only thing that's standing in the way is us. So it's, it's the only thing. It's safe to assume you don't you don't find near complete affinity with any current political um, figure right now? Is that safe to assume? That's a great question. Do you feel like you're <sighs> settling wherever you go? You know what I think? I think, so, <laughs> I think there are so many political figures who think the way I do, but they're so afraid of admitting it. Hmm. There's an organization hmm. that uh, I really admire called Braver Angels. I have no problem giving them a free plug. Please follow them. I think what they're doing is a true godsend. Their work is all about trying to find tools of conversation and inquiry about bridging the divide between pol- political ideologies. That's their whole purpose. And they also have special sessions set aside for political figures, representatives, many of whom do not want it broadcasted that they're a part of this. <laughs> because they know it would be suicide yeah. for their political future. Huh. And my heart goes out to them. The link to the they're correct in the, in the bio. Yeah. Because they would lose their life. Right? For all I know, you know, <laughs> people like, you know, I don't even say their names, but <laughs> the ones that you think of as extremists, I would imagine they tire of the act, the method acting, as it were, mm-hmm. of having to pretend that their public face is actually their private face. That actually gives me encouragement to know that that's actually the case, that many of us wish that that could be how we navigated the world publicly to say, yes, I think that everyone has a general sense of what's important. We all need each other. Look, I'm a neuroscientist, right? So let me put it this way. The reason why our behavior is as well organized as it is, is it works by something called opponent processes. You have 
glutaminergic receptors that are all about activation, excitatory neurons. And you have GABAergic, they are inhibitory, right? The brakes, you have the former, the accelerator, and then you have the latter, the brakes. You need both. Mm -hmm. They are opponents to one another and they allow precision. The right and left hemispheres of the brain actually work in concert with one another through opponent processes. We think of the left and the right in our current circumstances of political division as it being a battle of good versus evil. One side must prevail, the other must be vanquished. The truth is we need each other. Mm -hmm. We see things that the other can't see. It's a snake and the bee, ultraviolet, infrared. And it, it almost feels like with each, I mean, right now, I mean, at least here concentrated in America, the um, conservative versus progressive, um, it, it, it's, it's my experiences, and I felt this when I was at the Charlie Kirk mm. um, rally, there's not, you know, if you were to put me, if I was an alien coming here and I was associated with one of these ideologies and they said, okay, you, you know, you win people over, I would try to learn from my opponent. I would try to understand what they believe genuinely, not a caricature of what they what they believe. But it, there's not even an attempt to convince the other person. It's it's it's. If you really want, I mean, ideally, if you think you're right, if you think your beliefs on immigration or, or uh, abortion or whatever, if you believe these are correct, I'm good. If you believe these are correct um, views, your goal should be to convince the other person that these are in fact correct. But it doesn't even seem like there's an attempt to convince the other side. I mean, there was, if you were a uh, far left progressive at one of Charlie Kirk's events, it is nothing but derogatory insults and and smear campaigns against you. And likewise, when I when I listen to, um, not that I do it regularly, but if I listen to the Young Turks or or any of these other organization, uh, any of these other uh, channels, um, if I, I imagine myself, if I was um, very far right of spectrum. And I entered this 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 atmosphere. There's nothing that would convince me to change my mind. There's no priming. There's no uh, intellectual hospitality being given to me. I mean, there's nothing. Um, maybe if we could, maybe if we could have this narrative in our mind of, hey, this person you're talking to, this person you're interacting with, or even this person in earshot might think differently than you. And if you think you're right, how do you want to be a part of them changing their mind? You know, the language we pick, the the words we choose, the the the, the tone we have might change. I think of the times when I've had my, my mind changed, my whole grand narrative changed. Hmm. It was never through uh, hostility. It might have been through passion, but never through the sort of you know, fist on the chair, fist on the table, hostility. Um, I, I really feel like you're sort of the needle in the haystack right now for uh, a lot of our current division. Before you got to go, 
um, I want to, I really want to talk to you about religion hmm. and, um, yeah. with just the, the time we have, I'll, I'll briefly, I'll, I'll ever so briefly give you sort of my, um, position and maybe we can dialogue about this. Sure. Um, I grew up in South Texas and both of my parents are immigrants. My dad is from Turkey and my mom is from Canada and neither of them were raised really under uh, this a Christian atmosphere. Uh, but when you're wealthy and you live in South Texas, you're kind of a Christian by association. <laughs> you kind of have to be. You're not yeah. allowed to not be. Um, so I remember growing up, my dad would go to church. Eventually he stopped going. And when he stopped going, I thought, why the hell am I going? I don't want to do this. Uh, my mom was always quite... Um, quite devout. How, I mean, however intentionally, um, she might've just been going through the motions. I, I'll, I, I might, I might not never know. Um, I never quite cared. It was always boring and irrelevant to me. There was never any effort by my parents to be intentional with religion to me. And I remember I went to two church camps. The only times I went were because the girl I liked went. <laughs> I never went, I mean, and I, but I do remember when I was 14, I, I remember going to one and I had a very, I mean, I had the stereotypical, what, what a lot of people that have deconverted have talked about on online about this, you know, Jesus high. Um, I mean, I had that and, and it, it faded, you know, two days later, I think. Um, but when I was 17 years old, I was quite the menace and my parents, whether they gave up or you know, whatever it was, they sent me to this year-long boarding school Yes, in the middle of nowhere in East Texas. Yes. And it was Christian, but it wasn't, you know, hardcore Christian. It was called Heartlight Ministries. Mm-hmm. And I didn't care for religion when I went there. I did start going to church every Sunday there because it looked good for your mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. It's it's You're not there on a set time. They can keep you there for 18 months or you can be out in nine months. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to church, you know, <laughs> I'm doing the whole thing. And um, I, 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 re- I remember there was a, I mean, there's a staff there named Cody Kirk and he was always very intentional and very accommodating to my you know, 17-year-old drunken, horny worldview. Um, <laughs> he was very much patient with that. And um, you know, long story short, I was there on on a Sunday. We went to a public church. It's a very kind of sealed off campus, but on Sundays you go to a public church. And I remember I was there and me and my friend, we always loved to make fun of those fools with their hands up worshiping. Those were always the most crazy, weird, strange people to us. And uh, I remember he said, let's go sit up there so we can, you know, really see what these freaks are about. I said, absolutely. So we went front row and um, this very, these two people, you know, you would think they would never really uh, be associated with one another. This very elderly white man sat to my, stood to my left and this very young uh, dreaded uh, black guys sat to my right. And the two of them were great friends. The two of them loved each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, right there, a common division. I mean, especially in the middle of East Texas, they're they're quite racist out there. The, the, these two guys, they, I mean, they were best buds. And uh, we were worshiping, and I immediately felt really uncomfortable because hmm. they were both singing very loudly. Yeah. And they both 
put their arms around me, not in like a tight way, but loosely way. And this part's the reason I'm saying this is because it was in that moment where I just, I mean, it wasn't really conscious. It was kind of just whatever's giving them the confidence to let them sing this loud, even though they don't sing quite well. And whatever is this friendship, this kind of, whatever this is, that is so welcoming to me. These guys have never met me. They don't know anything about me. Uh, and they're laying their arms on me and they're smiling at me. Whatever this is, I mean, there's, there is a there there. There's something here. And slowly in this closed environment of Heartlight, I, I began this sort of journey through religion. <laughs> yes. And um, I eventually said, okay, I'll subscribe to this. And I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were some things I couldn't, quite get on board with. Um, one of them was young earth. I, I couldn't do it. You couldn't, it would take a lot for you to convince me. Um, and, and, but, but other than that, there were, there were other things where I quickly militized, militarized on, um, whether it be homosexuality, whether it be, um, you know, what sin is sex before marriage, these things like this. I got quite firm about these, um, and, um, as I started going through college, I got very into theology. I did, I did my undergrad in theology. Um, but shortly, I'm almost done with this, but shortly through, uh, my undergrad, I got, um, I, enc- I was watching William Lane Craig's mm. debates. He was always my favorite. Yeah. At first it was Frank Turek, um, very entry level. I mean, and Frank Turek and even Ken Ham sort of almost got me on the young earth train. I mean, uh, I don't know if you, you're familiar with Ken Ham. I am. He, yeah. yeah. I was really into these guys. I thought these guys were awesome. Mm-hmm. And um, then I found William Lane Craig and he said words I didn't understand. So I thought, oh, this guy's even smarter. So I got really associated with, with Craig uh, and I was watching Craig do debates and I would always cheer him on. And then he debated Sam Harris. And it was, it wasn't consciously, I don't think, but it was just, I just thought, whoever the Sam guy is, he's really quite convincing. I mean, he's just there's. I wonder what this guy does. Yeah. And and I've always I always felt as a especially in my early days as being a Christian, I always thought the best argument, my go-to silver bullet, is the moral argument, mm. objective morality. You don't get it anywhere else. And I found out Sam Harris has a book that says you can get objective morality without religion. The moral landscape. And I thought to myself, and I reviewed that book on this podcast, and I and I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to read that. <laughs> that, <laughs> that threatens everything I have. Yes. I mean, exactly what you're talking about, this confirmation bias. Um, that threatens everything that, yes. that, that, that I am. I mean, I always tell people every time I'm online, the moral argument, this is my go-to. Yeah. Um, I don't even want to entertain the idea that I might be wrong on this because I banked so much on this moral argument. Right. Um, but then I, I th- that kind of sent me into this spiral and I lived alone in an apartment um, that my parents are paying for. And so I, being alone right when COVID hits in 2020, you're lonely, you're isolated, you can't go out. And now you're having this big theological worldview sort of dissolving um, I mean, it was terrible. It mm. was it was really horrible to me. Yeah. And and I uh, that was the worst I've ever been. Yeah. And I thought to myself one day, I thought, 
you know, what am I more loyal to? Religion yes. or reality? Mm. Which one is, which one do I really care about most? And I, I decided reality, and I thought, if Sam Harris is right, if the moral, if, if you can get objective morality on the grounds of science alone, then damn it, I'll, I mean, I'll do that, whatever. I, I, I need to learn to drop these things. It was this internal conflict. Mm-hmm. So I read it, and whether it be my bias or whether it be lousy writing, it didn't convince me, but it got me realizing there's a whole other world of science and a whole other world of epistemology and a whole other world of thought out there that I have not encountered. I've been so concealed in my echo chamber here at Dallas Baptist University and and at Heartlight, and all my Christian walk has been done through these very narrow figures. I need to enter these other spheres and see what they're doing there, mm-hmm. um, which kind of got me into academia. It's where I decided I'm not going to be a police officer. I'm going to teach. I'm going to get my PhD. I'm going to go on this whole road. Um kind of leads me to where I am today. Mm. And it kind of got me realizing there are parts of religion that I, I need to be okay with dropping. You mentioned earlier, you associate with these groups and you end up signing on the fine print uh, or you, you sign and you don't read the fine print and you end up taking on all these, these axioms. And I guess, and I'll be done after I say this, is I've lately these past few years, I've been going through the fine print and being like, well, I actually don't agree to that part. Hmm. And I don't agree to that part in the fine print. And I guess I have what remains is this skeleton of Christianity, Hmm. uh, this exoskeleton that I subscribe to, but the finer things I see myself being more or less indifferent to, um, viability Hmm. of scripture, Trinity, um, hell. Hmm. Um, So that's enough about me. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know why I kind of went on that tangent. I, I, I guess I just wanted you to see the full picture of who you're talking to. Sure. Um, cause I, I, last thing I'll say, it, it's about you. When I first met you and I was listening to you talk and you talked about cognitive neuroscience and I immediately associated with you with Sam Harrison and I found out you listened to him and, um, I don't know if I ever told you, I was actually very scared talking to you because hmm. I was very, uh, I was pretty even though I was listening to a lot of Sam Harris, I was still holding on to a lot of my Christianity. And I was scared. I, was th- I thought to myself, dude, whoever this guy is, this Michael guy, well, he won. He's brilliant and he's super smart and he's interacting in all these fields that I could never come close to. Um, and I, I'm scared if I use enough, if I use too much religious language, hmm. he's going to think I'm this simpleton and, <laughs> and and he's never going to talk to me. He's, hmm. he's, he's going to look at me as this this bigot. Join the club. I got very scared. <laughs> and then you you almost, I think you kind of picked up on it and you kind of gave me this very comforting, dude, I go to this, me- I'm, 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 in, I'm at the Methodist church. I'm a Christian. You're good. And <laughs> this rush of relief of, oh, I'm, I'm safe. <laughs> this kind of came over me. <laughs> um, I'll stop it there. I want to hear you talk about maybe a little bit of your religious experience and sure. um, maybe some yeah, I'll just give you the reins here. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and when when you run out of time, you can tell me you run out of time. I'm sure. so curious. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about this. So both my mother and my father, both of them are Christians. It's very important to them. It defines who they are. And I was saturated in that as I was growing up. And I wanted to be regarded as a man of science, fundamentally. 
and I began to subscribe to this tension that for someone who is explicitly religious, that you couldn't possibly also be a man of science. That became a real issue for me. And you mentioned earlier, um, <laughs> we both really admire certain certain figures besides Sam Harris. Uh, there's a Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, <laughs> right? Amazing, amazing debater, excellent uh, journalist, and uh, you know Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins. Uh, when I went to college, I began to have this sense that if I really wanted to be a man of science, one of my feet empirically grounded, that my religious identity somehow was in jeopardy. And I truly believe that. Hmm. And beyond just the life of career, choices we make as far as <laughs> where we send our W-2s to, <laughs> <laughs> right? Our real human life, as it were, who we are outside of that when it comes to being human beings, family, friends. I was utterly convinced that I made a fundamental mistake in mm. thinking that I should turn my back on realizing that you have to stake your identity on something that answers fundamental questions about who you are, what's right and wrong. Why are you living? Why do you get up day after day? What are you trying to accomplish in your life? And I returned back to the church. And when I did that, I had a felt sense of being revitalized, feeling like I knew why I was getting up every day. It's a very human moment. Those kinds of expressions, divulgences, ways of speaking aren't very common for scientists. And it's a pity because I know many in the world of science wish they could be vulnerable in huh. that way. But... I could not deny that I needed to concede, that I needed to uh, acknowledge that I needed those things in my life. And the church that I left when I was a younger man, I returned back to. And I felt this resurgence of connection to a felt sense of duty, responsibility, and what I want to accomplish with this life. And the interesting thing, I suppose, about <laughs> being a Christian in a world of science is that uh, I realize it's all about action. That's where I have my felt sense of fulfillment in my life. There's only actually one commandment that's given by <laughs> Jesus in the uh, New Testament. It has to do with how he regarded his neighbors, Mm -hmm. So we're used to you know, the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament. Jesus only gave one commandment to his disciples when he knew that his departure was 
going to be um, inevitable. He said, love your neighbors as I've loved them. And that has been my praxis. That's been my principle by which I live. It's a higher calling. We're used to associating Judeo-Christian principles with love thy neighbors as thyself. But the truth is, is you should love thy neighbors as Jesus loved them. Yeah. It's all defined by action. So many Christians push so much pressure on themselves to say, just utter the magic words like a enchant like like a uh, a <laughs> a conjurer over a cauldron. Uh-huh. Just say these words yeah. and you'll be saved. But no. It's behaving in accordance with a certain principle of how we live in a um how we interact with our neighbors, with ourselves and having a certain aim and a principle for why we're living our lives. And when I really embraced that, I had this enduring sense of significance and what I was doing with my life. And I realized that so many people who define themselves as religious, they do so not out of love, (laughs) which is supposed to be the bedrock principle of Christianity, but out of fear. They're scared. They're terrified. Anyone who is threatened by the behavior of another is motivated by fear. I'll repeat that. Anyone who (laughs) behaves in accordance with trying to define or trying to um, reshape the behavior of another does so out out of fear. And I realize that so many people who define themselves religious do so out of that motivation. But standing out of strength is to stand out of love. And that's the lodestar of my life, is trying to expand the horizon of the capacity to love, not just to express it, but to receive it. And that's speaking beyond the confines of being a scientist. It's within the domain of being a human being. Hmm. And that's my motivation, is trying to spread that gospel. And uh, I know it's an uphill battle. I know it's it's done one person at a time, but that does not uh, fatigue me. Good. And does not arrest my uh, my passions or my my interest in trying to engage in that struggle. And uh, I understand that through all the accolades, through all the pursuits of my life, ultimately, that's what it comes down to, is that all of us want to express love and feel it. But so few of us really are in contact with that. Mm. And that's what motivates our hostility and and, uh, aggression. It's why we're so divided against each other. Maybe if we could take some of these solutions we have for um, enhancing this metacognitive sensitivity with ourselves in political discussions, if we could just do it in everyday discussions. Yes. And and for those of us that are um, religious and, and, and spiritual in these senses, if, I mean, 
if I can just drop the BS language for for those of us that are Christian, if we could sort of apply this to how we view those that don't align with us, even on the the more narrow, especially on the more narrow topics, um, it doesn't just. You know, I think I'm right in saying it doesn't just lead to a more easy or simple or loving life, but more of what the life that Jesus would want us to be mm. living here. Yes. Um, you know, someday we we will give an account of of how we handled our um, he- heaven is is framed in, in this eternal. I mean, all of all of time just sort of disappears when when we or our concept of time certainly evaporates when we enter heaven i'm i did an episode on here about the book called heaven mm-hmm. um time is real there but th- this quickness this we got to get to the next thing sort of drops there and when we're giving our account if you don't think jesus is going to have time to go through each individual conversation we've had here on earth I think we're mistaken. He will. He will have. We will have the time to go through the fine details of, of what we did in our <laughs> in our daily walk, including the conversations we have with ourselves. Right. Um, we're going to give an account of, of those as well. Well, I wish I knew that you what you did for for work, working for a defense contractor. I mean, I would love to talk about that. I would love to talk more about free will. Um, I would love to talk about, I mean, I would love to expound on literally everything I've written down here. Um, but you have been, like I said earlier, I did, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say I get so, I really view, um, where we live, not as a country with borders. I mean, um, we are a country with borders, but just the people around us, especially, I, I've had to confront, if I'm just talking dirty about all these people, well, I'm wasting my time. I, I, I love, if I, I'm supposed to love these people, I'm supposed to have these people uh, championed and, and treated well. Um, these people make up our collective, um, the people around us. And um, you have given us not, I mean, we've not just diagnosed a problem, but you did exactly, I mean, off off the recording here, I told Michael, I said, if you, if you can please give us a tangible way to go about these problems. I mean, sure. you, you've given us the sickness, please give us the cure. And uh, I don't think we'll ever have a... Um, a straight vaccine for all these, all these uh, difficulties of division and, and confirmation bias. I mean, um, I would assume you would admit you still suffer from confirmation bias. It's a default. It's built into the human cognitive system. It can't be escaped. And, and hopefully the more you dive into uh, your personal studies on, on our evolutionary development, um, you can kind of nail down the, the, the reasons for this. And, um, I have no idea how, how, how evolution works and the time frame that it operates in, but I would assume, hopefully, we can root this out of our, uh, out of our genes, hopefully. I mean, this is so painful for, for me and, and for others to just immediately view human beings, flesh and blood, 
Imago Days as as enemies, as opponents. It's just so poisonous. Um, but you've been you've been brilliant. I'm, I mean, this has probably been the most interesting episode I've I've had. Um, you being a you bring a professionalism, but also a tangibility and a and a practicality to these problems. I mean, we're all experiencing, and um, hopefully your comments. I mean, I'll tell you straight up your your comments on religion. And um, your perspective on it have certainly given me a lot to uh, parse over in my own time. Um, and I'll give you that dreaded uh, retrospect um, feedback uh, later. But um, as far as that goes, thank you for your time. I mean, this has been um, tr- truly valuable. And I, I hope anyone listening has found as much value in this as I have. I didn't expect to be sitting here with so much self-reflection with you talking, but here I am. So yeah, say whatever you, I mean, I, again, I have all night, but I'll let you, uh, wrap up here on your own time. No, I really appreciate this. Um, it's a really honor to be able to express the synthesis of what I've, I've learned through my, my professional studies, my professional approach to this, but also being able to integrate my personal relationship with many of these questions we've worked on together. And um, what I will say is that, uh, you know, many of us want a sense of what we're supposed to do. What I've noticed is there's no shortage of diagnoses of the problem, tribalism, trying to understand good versus evil, why we're here, what we're supposed to do with our talents and our time. These are questions that are universal. So that's not unique and nothing special about bringing those things up. But what I hope I'm alerting our listeners to is that even though every... Every mainstream source we can think of compels us to think of our interchanges with one another as being mono mono, one person versus another, one group versus another. And that's how we define our lives. One group of people conquering another group of people. Ultimately, it's all of us. We're all on the same side. Any sort of divisions we see among people, that's entirely our responsibility. Something has gone wrong because each of us has a unique life to live. We're all valuable and we all have a purpose. And if there's something we've encountered that convinced us that our neighbor is our, our enemy and that our purpose in life is defined by that, conquering our enemy as, you know, in quotes, We've made a mistake along the way. Mm. And what motivates me is you realize if I've regarded one of my neighbors as my enemy, I've made a mistake. I need to figure out where I've made the mistake, where I've gone wrong there. Mm -hmm. I need to learn more. I need to ask more questions. What is it about this person I have not figured out yet? Because if I learn enough about them, I realize they're not so unlike me. And that they're trying to find out the same things I am about why they're here. We do always have more in common with each other than we do 
not in common. That's right. And, you know, what really motivates me is that we're so, <laughs> we're so um, inured to this division between religion and science. We think of them as being antipodes to one another, that they're at war. But I see this sense of discipline in our practices of personal meaning and purpose, i.e. religion, instances of really getting a handle on how the world is organized. What are the unseen gears and fuel and propellants of movement and all the physical aspects of the universe, i.e. science. Now, these two, th two things are inextricable one from one another. They're not enemies. They need to be married. They're indispensable to one another. That's my personal motivation. And the more days I accrue in my life, the more I'm convinced that that's where my meaning lies. Hmm. But many of us are searching for that and feel very lost. Mm -hmm. So what I would ask the listener to consider is, is their life defined by regarding their neighbor as their enemy or regarding their enemy as a co-collaborator who has also fallen under a similar misapprehension as to why they're here. And is it better, is it possible that they can build more as friends or as enemies? Mm -hmm. That's my primary motivation. Yeah, what's the end goal? Yeah. Well, um, everyone, this has been Dr. Michael Lundy here on Vertical. So, Michael, thank you for being here. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.